For seven years, a man was a star, and then poof, he was gone. Immediately, his passing was noted, he was commemorated, and anything and everything was written about his time in the sun. In a sense, his story was over. Now, 38 years later, suddenly, his story is retold. But why? Today, we discuss the ideas of forgotten history and how it intersects with collective memory, and we do so using the life of comedian John Belushi and the recent Showtime documentary devoted to him. Today on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hi, I'm John Belushi. Just having a cup of coffee before the show. It's kind of a tradition with me. (laughs) Here at Saturday Night Live, we have another tradition that the show is always open with the words, Live from New York, it's... Well, you know the rest. Tonight, our producer, Lauren Michaels, has convinced the NBC brass to let me say the words. So we'll start tonight's show. Now, it was no easy battle. I mean, we've done close to 50 shows, and this is the first time I've been allowed to do the opening. You see, I've got a bad reputation around NBC as a troublemaker. (laughs) The network brass think all actors are stupid. So, uh, naturally, any actor who thinks for himself or has any sort of intellect is a troublemaker to them. <laughs> Let's forget that now. I mean, that's not important now. Anyway, that I know that my being out here alone at the beginning of a live show represents a, a secret trust the network has bestowed upon me. Because, of course, the show cannot start until I say those words. <laughs> Think of it. (laughs) Right now, NBC, one of the country's largest corporations with billions in assets, is waiting for me, a stupid, troublemaking punk actor from Wheaton, Illinois, to open the show. Well, I've got them where I want them. Right in the palm of my hand. But although I could easily do it, I would never, never, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Betray the network's trust in me. I will say the words, live from New York, it's, you know what, when I'm ready. I will now read a list of demands. When these demands are met, I will say the words that open the show. Get back, Bobby. Now, I mean business. No, don't try and stop me. Bob Van Rye, one of our stage managers, a heck of a guy. Let's hear it for him. A nice guy. Let's not start anything, okay? First demand. Separate showers for the male and female cast members. Now, I myself don't mind showering with the girls, but I know the new kid, Bill Murray, doesn't like it. He's shy. 
The guy's been showering with his swim, swim trunks on, you know. It's embarrassing. But can you blame him? Uh, my second demand. Beer for the whole crew on work nights! My third demand. For myself, I want nothing. But for my lovely new wife, Judy, I demand an all-expense-paid trip for two to the next Alley Foreman fight in Korea, plus two ringside seats. I can wait. Hey. I've got all night. Watch this. Live from New York, it's Thursday night! <laughs> Just kidding, suckers. Ah. Oh, what's this? I knew the weasels would back down. Oh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Dear John, whatever your demands are, they will be met. Hey, what'd I say? But before we discuss those demands in greater detail, may we say how very much we admire your acting work. We enjoy all your characterizations, though our favorites would have to be your samurai, your Brando, your B, your Joe Cocker, your Live from New York at Saturday Night. No way, stop! Go! That is, of course, the late, great John Belushi from the cold open of Saturday Night Live from March 26, 1977. My name is Jonathan Bullinger, and if you've never listened before to Inside the Box, welcome. And for those of you who are new to listening to our program, just a few reminders. So this episode, along with all the other new main feed episodes, are available right here in the feed in which you found it, and they're totally free. However, you might also be interested in the archive of previous seasons and episodes that we've done. You can check out what we've done and see a synopsis of each episode to see if you're interested in listening to the archive simply by going to www.tvhistorypod.com. Again, that's tvhistorypod.com. T-V-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-P-O-D.com. So you'll be able to see a synopsis of all the different episodes we've done in the archive. However, to get access to those archived episodes, you need to become a subscriber to Patreon. And you can find us at Patreon at Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast. Now, if you do that, and again, we're not trying to get rich here. We're just trying to help uh, keep the lights on. If you choose to subscribe to Patreon, you get access to not only the entire archive of previous episodes, but during this limited episode season, you also get access to new bonus episodes that are released in the all weeks from the main feed episodes. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear some new, well, new to you, old, older content, but it's evergreen, right? It's all uh, something that we talked about at any time, then please consider subscribing to our Patreon and uh, get access to that archive and also get access to all these other interesting bonus episodes. Okay, thank you. If you have been listening, as I've mentioned in the past, our goal for this new season of Inside the Box is to focus each new abbreviated season, we expect a season to be anywhere from six to eight episodes, around a particular theme or subject matter. And no, I'm afraid if you were a diehard John Belushi fan, you'll be disappointed. 
Our theme for this season is not Belushi, or even comedy for that matter. Instead, our theme is collective memory, and how that intersects with history. But, we're going to explore those ideas using fun or interesting media examples like Belushi. So, you're welcome to hit stop right now on your smartphone and load up your favorite How Did This Get Made episode instead. But, I promise, if you like history, you will get something cool out of this episode. The perception of the passage of time is on my mind these days. It's honestly probably just normal for someone my age, kinda in the middle, and wondering whether it's normal for time to appear to speed up so much. But really, it's the blocks or chunks of time, and how long they feel or have ever felt, that really has my attention. You know, I catch myself thinking, like, did 1975 feel like five years ago when it was 1980? What I'm getting at is the idea of culture and how the passage of time feels in any particular moment. Marwick famously defined the 60s as the long 60s to account for the fact that it isn't so much about what year it is as much as it is what the culture is all about at a particular time. I bring all this up as a way to ask, is 38 years a long time really? When I think about an individual's lifespan, that number seems not too significant. Yet, when I think about the amount of media content we consume, how much more quote-unquote stuff there is to look at, and yes, to culture, well, I guess 38 years feels actually quite long ago. And that's the funny thing about it, isn't it? 38 years ago could be a long time but is further marginalized when you remember how much recorded stuff came before it. In that way, 38 is just a drop in the bucket. And yet the fact that it is recorded and a good potentiality for recall and replay makes it weirdly also very present, if you want it to be. These ideas, the sense of time and how present older cultural productions, ideas, and persons are in our mediated world, are both cool and important ideas to discuss. But for today's episode, they are just ideas to provide context. We'll revisit these ideas in a later episode. For today, though, we ask, how and why, 38 years after John Belushi's death, is his life represented in documentary form? It provides a great case study for us to think about issues of memory, history, and stakeholders when a historian or documentarian engages with a topic. The Showtime Cable Network, which is owned by Viacom CBS, aired R.J. Cutler's new documentary titled Belushi on November 22, 2020, just in time for the Thanksgiving holiday. As a child who grew up a kind of obsessed with Saturday Night Live and who sort of worshipped that second great Lorne Michaels-produced cast of a Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey, Nora Dunn, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Dennis Miller, and Victoria Jackson, and certainly mythologized the first cast from 1975 to 1980, the fact this documentary popped up in 2020 kind of sparked my brain. If I'm being honest, my first cynical knee-jerk reaction was, why? John Belushi lived from 1949 to 1982 so he'd been dead for 38 years, 
by the time the documentary arrived. More importantly, as an SNL-obsessed kid who'd read as a child Hill and Weingrod's Saturday Night, a backstage history of Saturday Night Live, and had lived through the backlash of the filmed version of Woodward's book Wired, my initial thoughts were, what else is there to say? And if I'm being completely honest, besides a few college bros who still hang Animal House's Bluto posters in their dorm rooms, what young person in 2020 or 2021 know or honestly would care about TV and film star from 1975 to 1982, John Belushi? What this really scratched for me was the chance to combine my two persistent itches, if you will, my love for comedy and my love to think through issues of collective memory and history. Okay, so I think we've reached the part of this episode that is both the driest, (laughs) yet probably the most important, and that is we have to begin to nail down some vocabulary and definitions before we move forward. For those of you smart enough not to get into academics, uh, well, think of this as just doing all those basic repetitions at the gym that you don't want to do, but you know you have to do if you want to build a solid foundation. So there's a bunch of different terms here in thinking through this topic that have been sort of batted around in my brain and with Andrew, and those include, but are certainly not limited to, concepts like dead history versus forgotten history, history in general, collective memory, stakeholders, utility, and last but not least, relevancy. So I think it would be good to just keep the training wheels on at the start, and let's just start by defining collective memory versus history. At the broadest level are history and collective memory. History is both A, a discipline with its own codes, conventions, and ethos for creating knowledge about the past, and B, more generally, everything that has happened before today. Whereas collective memory is a recollection of a past inspired by the social or cultural needs of the present, tied to group affiliation and identity. Now, at first blush, it's tempting to divide history and collective memory as entirely separate entities. In fact, collective memory's founding father, Maurice Hobwalks, and for those not familiar, he lived from 1877 to 1945, he actually did see them in his own time as opposites. Or, as he wrote, quote, general history starts only when tradition ends and the social memory is fading or breaking up. So long as a remembrance continues to exist, it is useless to set it down in writing or otherwise fix it in memory. Likewise, the need to write the history of a period, a society, or even a person is only aroused when the subject is already too distant in the past to allow for the testimony of those who preserve some remembrance of it. Yet, scholars such as Marita Sturkin show, history and memory are actually often entangled. And when we add to that the idea that media is often also intertwined with memory, uh, for example, uh, Von Dake's work from 2008, then the interplay between recorded history, media presentations, and collective memory become that much tighter. Okay, So while we like to think of collective memory as one steeped in experience and identity, 
usually associated with those still living, and history with a specific disciplined knowledge about the past, the truth is that they tend to get tangled up a bit, especially when you take into account how large a role media plays within our everyday lives. All right, so I think the second brick, if you will, that we need to lay down in the foundation we're building is a simple but powerful one. It's the idea, or maybe truth is a better word, that history is really not about the past so much as it is about the present. What I mean is that history can only be viewed through the lens of the present. So, its perceived utility will always be shaped by contemporary needs and issues. Okay, so we've established the definitions for collective memory and history, and admitted they intersect with each other and mass media. Then, we've also established that history is really always more about the present times than it is the past. Stay with us, I think there's only one or two more terms left. (laughs) They are stakeholders and utility slash relevancy. Here we go. If past events hold no significance to certain human beings, then that memory and or recorded history will at best be forgotten, if not entirely lost. So the term I'm using here for those human beings are stakeholders. As a way to define the vast range of this term, I've created a quote-unquote emotional stakeholder to symbolize a very narrow type, and a quote-unquote national stakeholder to symbolize a very broad type of investment. Now I admit that these are very crude terms, but I think they're useful just as a starting point. As for our last terms, or term really, utility and relevancy, we've already creeped toward it with our second point. Simply that, history is really about the present and its utility is derived from current needs. Well, going beyond that, what I've been trying to think about are the economic needs history can fulfill particularly in a media-saturated or content-hungry environment that we're all currently living within. So, crudely, a stakeholder could possess an emotional need to retell a story that has long since ended, but they could simultaneously also possess an economic need to retell that story. Or, another formulation is that one individual stakeholder possesses an emotional need, while an institutional stakeholder possesses an economic, and the two intersect to benefit both. Before we move on to our next step, I think it's only fair to reward the listeners who've hung on this long listening to these dry definitions with another clip from John Belushi. Here from Season 1, January 10th, 1976, the camera work gets really bad during a Killer Bee sketch, and Belushi narrates as producer Lauren Michaels walks into the control room to confront director Dave Wilson. We began our trip north in April. In April we began to... Bo- Stop the music! Elliot, uh, I think there's some kind of technical difficulty here. Uh, uh, 
Well, the camera's been on us all during your speech. I think it, it should is. be the other way around. That's true, Elliot. I know the same thing. Yeah. I don't know what it Elliot, is. Elliot, Elliot, right why don't you sit over here and give your speech? Yeah, that's right. Just here. right near us. Right here. <laughs> 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 the point is that the camera should be on him. Right here. Just a yeah. shot. <laughs> Turn this way. Right, right. Use it right there. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was in the middle. Okay. Senor, <laughs> people are a poor people. They have worked very hard. The harvest is so small for so long. I knew we would have to leave to find food elsewhere for our starving children. Oh, 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 oh. stop it, stop it. Lauren, Lauren, Lauren Michaels. I don't believe this. Well, what's the problem? Well, look at this shop. Look at this shop, Lauren. Oh, my. Uh, Elliot, I, I can only apologize. Excuse me, I'm Lauren Michaels. I'm the producer of this show. Uh, Elliot, I can only apologize. Uh, well, you want me to do the speech from here, Lauren? Uh, no, I, I, it's, it's nothing to worry about. I'm sure it's just a minor technical problem. I'll uh, see to it right now. Okay, if you just excuse me, just wait one moment, please. I can't believe this angle. I don't well, know. What, what is he going to do? I think well, he's going to the control room. I don't know. He's probably going to talk to the director or uh, something. Just stay here I'll tell you this. He's, he's mad now. I've seen Elliot mad, but he's. <laughs> I mean, not Elliot, Lauren. I've seen, I've seen Elliot mad too, but he's mad. Well, I mean, I, I hope oh, oh, <laughs> I hope he's not too hard on the director. Well, listen, let me tell you one thing about Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels has the biggest heart in show business. You see, he hired that director, but nobody else would hire him. You see, 22 years ago, Dave Wilson was the best young director in television. He was at the top of his career. You see, he was directing I Mary Joe at that time. Then, one day the pressure got to him. And he started hitting the bottle. He went on a bender and didn't pull out of it until Lauren found him six months ago and gave him this job and a new sense of himself. Since then, he's been on the wagon. Or at least until tonight. Okay, so Lauren took a chance gave an old-timer a new start. And maybe the pressure got to him again. He cracked. But that's not Lauren's fault. He knows we've got a show to do. And if he has to fire him, he will, because he's that kind of producer. But let me tell you one thing, Elliot. I wouldn't be in Lauren Michaels' shoes for all the money in the world, because right now, he's probably in there firing his own father. <laughs> so, rather than spend time attempting to support the idea that Belushi the documentary represents the reanimation of quote-unquote dead history, instead I'll use it as a case study to understand the reanimation of forgotten history and the significant roles historians, documentarians, and other stakeholders play in such a reanimation. All of this is in service to simply answer my original question of, quote, why a John Belushi documentary now, or relatively recently, in 2020? As I mentioned, comedian John Belushi lived from 1949 to 1982, and he began to receive regional notice and attention within comedy fan circles during the early 1970s, first with Chicago's Second City Theater, and then later with the National Lampoon. 
his younger boomer generation often situated themselves against the status quo through national events including Vietnam, civil rights, and eventually Watergate. Belushi himself was never overly political in his comedy, but he nonetheless embodied the countercultural energy of his generation who preferred to deflate the pomposity, formality, and artifice of the previous generation's presentations and rituals. Producer Lorne Michaels, beginning what would become the long-running Saturday Night Live, or, or as it was originally known, NBC's Saturday Night, in 1975, embodied and actively promoted that generational ethos by naming his first cast, which included Belushi, the, quote, not ready for primetime players, end quote. The secret, not-so-secret truth of Saturday Night Live is that while publicly it has always promoted itself as a cast-based or ensemble-based show, inevitably, almost every season, there is, in fact, one breakout star who is actually or truly the focus of the show. Now, during that first season, it was, of course, Chevy Chase, who probably for the first time in Belushi's young career actually pulled focus away from John in a way that he neither expected nor enjoyed. During the second season, when Chase left the program and Bill Murray was still adjusting to working on live television, Belushi was able to grab that spotlight and never really let it go until he and his buddy and castmate and really creative partner Dan Aykroyd left the program themselves in 1979. The media ecosystem of the mid to late 1970s was relatively constrained to three television networks, plus PBS, HBO, and some cable access. Feature films, books, comic books, magazines, daily newspapers, and the beginnings of video games. On television, the day parts of programming mattered. Daytime was for soap operas and talk shows. Then, local evening news, primetime, and then late night. While we certainly can't say late night was risque, particularly when set against some primetime programming such as the late 70s quote-unquote jiggle shows like Charlie's Angels or Three's Company, it nonetheless felt like the time to say or show something that you otherwise couldn't during those quote-unquote family hours. So, for Belushi's 20-something contemporaries in the viewing audience, and the younger viewers staying up late, his cast's Saturday Night Live felt particularly energetic, kind of naughty, and at times a little dangerous. It was a show connecting with its audience through a very particular cultural language and sensibility occurring during a formative time for many younger viewers. It's in this situation that Belushi became a star, and for many, became embedded within fans' hearts. Belushi only appeared in eight feature films during his short life, and only two of those eight, I would say, were considered actual hits. Thankfully, those two, Animal House from 1978, while he was still a cast member of Saturday Night Live, and The Blues Brothers from 1980, right after he left the show, were both massive successes with his audience. During this time, it was one thing to be a television star, but it was much more desirable to be considered a film star. By 1981, Belushi had achieved both. By 1982, he'd be dead. 
As you all know, since our last live show, we lost our friend and colleague, John Belushi. John was an original cast member of Saturday Night Live and someone I worked with uh, for many years, both here and in Chicago. John put me up when I first came to New York and took care of me. Once he and I were uh, running down Bleecker Street in the village uh, during a snowstorm, and uh, we were running with our heads down and had our hats pulled over our eyes. Couldn't see where we were going. We came to a corner and uh, John yelled at me, uh, look out, and shoved me aside. And uh, I turned just in time to see him get hit by a 10-ton truck. Right bumper caught him and he flew up in the air and uh, landed on the curb and got up and dusted himself off and uh, seemed perfectly all right. Uh, an ambulance came and he, he didn't want to get in it and uh, so we went to St. Vincent's Hospital anyway and they x-rayed him and he, he was perfect, perfectly all right. Nothing wrong with him at all. So, uh, so he saved my life and uh, I always thought he was indestructible. So uh, speaking for the current cast, the, the band, the staff backstage and the crew here in the studio, hundreds of people who knew and worked with John. We mourn his death and we miss him very much. Belushi died on March 5th, 1982, due to a combined drug, cocaine and heroin, intoxication. By this time, Lorne Michaels had also left his creation, Saturday Night Live, and the show was in a precarious position, but slowly crawling out of it thanks to rising star Eddie Murphy. It was also a new decade. The original cast were all off trying to be film, TV, or stage stars. Lorne was no longer at the helm, and Belushi was dead from a drug accident. By 1982, it felt like an era had passed. Very quickly, on June 4, 1984, or about two years later, Bob Woodward published his book, Wired, about the life and drug-fueled death of Belushi. Two years later, after Lorne Michaels had re-entered the fold of NBC and his program Saturday Night Live, Doug Hill and Jeff Weingrod published their Saturday Night, a backstage history of Saturday Night Live, about the show's first cast, and that book was released at the beginning of 1986. Lorne brought Saturday Night Live back to relevance, even more consistently than the patchy, Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal, non-Lorne years, by, and he did all this by 1987. Original cast star Gilda Radner unfortunately passed away from cancer in May of 1989. A few months later, a poorly received film adaptation of Woodward's book Wired was released on August 25th, 1989. I give it a thumbs up. Next movie. Our next movie is named Wired, and this is inspired by the life and death of John Belushi, who became the most popular comic actor of his generation and then died of a sordid drug overdose. Belushi's life and death inspired a best-selling book by Watergate journalist Bob Woodward, and the movie is based on the book, although it takes a lot of liberties with Woodward's reporting approach, including the weird plot idea that Belushi's ghost is going to be taken back on a journey through his own life by an angel of death, played by Ray Sharkey. I remember you played a coke addict. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you was a funny guy, man. You was a funny guy. But you died in the end. Sort of like the ghost of Christmas past. Belushi and his friend and partner, Dan Aykroyd, are portrayed in the movie by Michael Chiklis and Gary Grooms, who have a real handicap, since we all remember so well what they were like in the imitation seems unconvincing. Yeah. 
even has a character based on Bob Woodward of the Washington Post who interviews Belushi's wife, Judy, played by Lucinda Jennings. He had a life pattern of binges, and not just drugs, and everything. He went through this Napoleonic period, bought all these books on Napoleon, started doing Napoleon, talking in his sleep, just obsessed with Napoleon. And there were all the unhappy details of Belushi's death in this interview with the last person to see him alive. He was alive when I left him this morning. Are you into heroin or anything? No. I was into heroin for a while. That is Patty Darbonville playing Kathy Smith, who administered Belushi's fatal drug overdose. And Darbonville is effective in the role, but in fact, all of the actors in this movie are more or less at sea because the screenplay is so bizarre. How do they ever get the idea of using two different and contradictory devices to tell the same story? While the Woodward character does his reporting on a realistic level, the angel of death is taking poor John Belushi on a tour through his life that, like I said before, it almost seems like an assignment for the ghost of Christmas past. You figure it out. I kept waiting for Woodward to meet the angel of death. Do you remember that story, a famous journalism story, when Bob Considine, 50, 60 years ago, went down to cover the Johnson City flood, and he sent back a story saying, uh, God stood on a mountaintop here and looked at what his floodwaters had wrought. And his editor, Cindy McCable, and said, forget flood, interview God. Right. With this movie, I kept expecting Ben Bradley of the Washington Post to send Woodward a cable saying, forget Belushi, interview Angel of it, Death. It's very difficult to pull off that uh, revisiting your life conceit uh -huh. in a film. It's, it, it's, it's really hard, and it's particularly hard when you're dealing with a contemporary film, when that is such an out there and kind of, you know, historical thing, like you yeah. said with Dickens. So I don't think that that works, and that was probably a bad decision. At the same time, when I watched the picture, I, I didn't uh, get bored, because it's an important life, and, and what happened to his life is obviously quite uh, relevant to the times that we live in. Uh, I just wish that Bob Fosse, the late great director, were alive because he could have made this story really well. The guy who made Star 80, this was a story made for him, and it isn't, it isn't well done. There could be, there obviously could obviously. be a good movie based on the life of John Belushi. They have wasted an opportunity here, and the irony is, is that Woodward was a, participated in the making of this film, and his book, Wired, yeah. was a very good piece oh, of I reporting, so. but the movie, it seems to me, is just, uh, it's almost as if they threw anything they could think of into the screenplay to see what would work and what would I want to differ with you on one point. I thought that the two guys that played Belushi and Aykroyd uh, were very good in what they had to do. And I d wasn't uh, offended by watching the portrayal. I bought the did. mannerisms of, of Aykroyd's character, this Gary Group, absolutely dead on. They did what they could do. Yes. But isn't the problem that these people are so current in your mind mm -hmm. that no matter what these people do, you know that it's not. I think, they, I think these two actors could have pulled it off with a better script and direction. Coming up next, Peter Falk. Belushi's distraught widow Judy, who was no fan of Woodward's work, attempted to set the record straight with her own story in a book titled Samurai Widow, released the following year, or to be specific, May-June 1990. So, if you were one of John Belushi's fans, or even just a fan of the original years of Saturday Night Live, and, honestly, were actually paying attention... By the late 1980s, it would seem that Belushi and Gilda's stories had already been told. The best you could do at that point was hope to see more funny stuff from the surviving stars. It did seem possible as Lorne came back with the John Lovitz, Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey cast. Chevy could still be funny in films like Funny Farm from 1988 or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation from 1989. 
And Bill Murray had uh, also done Scrooged in 1988. And still to come for him, Groundhog Day in 1993. Even frequent Saturday Night Live host Steve Martin had funny stuff, including Roxanne from 1987, Parenthood from 1989, and the underlooked My Blue Heaven from 1990, among many others. So, to reiterate, if Belushi's story ended in 1982, was admittedly poorly written in 1984, his SNL story written in 1986, and his widow's story written in 1990. Why then, quote-unquote, suddenly, in 2020, was his name the subject of a brand new documentary from Showtime? Here, we use the story of the documentary to make some points regarding how historians work, and more broadly, the idea of forgotten history. As established, John's widow, Judith Belushi Pisano, co-authored with Tanner Colby their 2005 book, Belushi, a Biography. Judith had remarried in 1990 to Victor Pisano. Judith filed for divorce from Victor in October of 2010. According to The Hollywood Reporter's Eric Gardner, Judith was under financial strain in the years leading up to their separation, receiving a $100,000 loan from her late husband's brother, and also actor, Jim Belushi, in June of 2010. Judith as Belushi's widow acts as his estate, and its monies are derived primarily from the property, the Blues Brothers, and Belushi's likeness. In August of 2010, it was announced in industry trade papers that Warner Brothers secured the film rights from John Belushi's estate and hired the film The Hangovers uh, director Todd Phillips and The Pursuit of Happiness as a screenwriter Stephen Conrad to develop the project with Phillips producing and Conrad writing, respectively. Uh, Belushi's widow was also listed as an executive producer and all the then young top comedic talent, so think like Jonah Hill, Jack Black, Zach Galifianakis, were imagined as possible leads as Belushi. The Hollywood Reporter in particular described Warner Brothers' attempts to secure the rights as a quote-unquote difficult process, as the deal came together, then fell apart, then came together again. One year later, in August 2011, it was reported that Belushi's widow Judith and famous original SNL writer Ann Beats co-wrote a pilot script for a proposed Blues Brothers television show that at the time they were shopping around to various TV networks. It was noted by MovieWeb's B. Uh, Allen Orange that Universal Studios owned the Blues Brothers film rights, but that Judith and comedian Dan Aykroyd jointly owned the TV rights. The following year, in April 2012, it was announced that Judith and Dan had partnered with Panacea's head Eric Gardner in order to manage the Blues Brothers property. The new partnership's plans included Judith and Ann Beats's proposed TV program, along with books, a Broadway musical, endorsements, and even a quote-unquote branded radio network, <laughs> of all things. And then, skipping ahead four years, by 2016, that partnership announced a new animated TV series based on the Blues Brothers that actually was the second time that they had attempted one. 
The first was actually back in 1997, when eight episodes were produced, but they never actually aired. Back on the biography documentary front, by 2013, it was announced that Todd Phillips had stepped away from the project, and writer Stephen Conrad would also direct, with performers like Emil Hirsch, Joaquin Phoenix, and Adam Devine mentioned as possible leads. Not much else was heard about this project, and then three years later, in 2016, we first heard about R.J. Cutler's documentary. It was announced in late May that Cutler and producer John Batsick, who had done Searching for Sugar Man, would begin production in the fall. Belushi's widow, Judith, revealed that she and Batsick had been discussing the possibility of doing the film, quote-unquote, for over a decade, until Batsick finally secured her approval. Beyond the documentary's own challenges in becoming a project, there are other industry contexts that help to answer why, when, and where we saw Belushi, the documentary from 2020, actually being released. Some of that context comes in the form of the actual networks that it, network rather that it appeared on. In 2017, Showtime also aired I'm Dying Up Here, a scripted comedy drama series about the 1970s Los Angeles stand-up scene produced by actor-comedian Jim Carrey and based on William Nodelsider's 2009 book. Consisting of 20 episodes across two seasons, the show's cast received good reviews, but the overall tone was seen as quote-unquote grim or morose, and its characters unlikable. Based on my own knowledge of that time and scene, such characterizations are probably accurate, actually, regardless of whether it makes for an enjoyable program to watch. And even when the program was announced, as from Jim Carrey in 2015, it was described as a, quote, dark comedy club series, unquote. The original book, I'm Dying Up Here, Heartbreak and High Times in Stand-Up Comedy's Golden Age, is based off the author's own experiences as a young cub reporter for the LA Times, covering the then stand-up comedy scene, in particular when some comics fought back against some of the unfair and underpaying labor practices of the clubs at that time. The battle did rattle the small community of ambitious comics who hoped to make it, and ultimately the experience ruined some of their friendships. And for more context, the next year, not on, uh, not on Showtime, but CNN in 2018, fans of the original SNL cast saw the release of the documentary Love Gilda in April at the Tribeca Film Festival. Its television premiere occurred on January 1, 2019 on CNN, and their, uh, their film's imprint uh, actually produced the film. Similar to Belushi's director Cutler, Love Gilda's director, Lisa Dapolito, found out Gilda's brother had boxes of Gilda's things that hadn't been seen. This new archival material put Dapolito's own experience Volunteering for Gilda's Club, which is a cancer support group, made the director feel that there was still a story left to tell. Then in October 2020, Showtime also showed the five-part documentary series The Comedy Store, directed by Mike Binder, and its last episode aired about three weeks prior to Belushi's premiere. The Comedy Store covers similar territory to both the book and film 
I'm Dying Up Here, and more generally scratches a nostalgic itch for the familiar world of 70s comedy for fans of David Letterman and Jay Leno in much the same way the docs about John and Gilda perform. While Showtime is certainly not the only network indulging in this subject matter, well-regarded chairman and CEO of Showtime Networks, David Nevins, seems to be a significant supporter of such projects. And so this gets us into our last terms, or specifically stakeholders and utility. In terms of stakeholders, we have John's widow, Judy Belushi, who understandably had an intense emotional stake in her late husband's memory. This feeling was greatly intensified by what Judy perceived as a misrepresentation of her husband by journalist Bob Woodward, who focused on the side of John who was an addict. Judy also acts as a stakeholder in the classic economic definition, since, legally, she acts as John's estate. While the audience for her late husband is somewhat in flux, and I'll touch on this point soon, there are nonetheless monies attached to John Belushi's work and likeness that Judy as the estate must manage. So, to initially answer my original question, why Belushi the documentary in the year 2020, Well, the partial answer is that Judy, as an emotional and legal stakeholder, has made deliberate decisions regarding her husband's legacy that transitions his story from forgotten to retold. Cutler, the director, working as a fan, historian, and documentarian, is another stakeholder whose purchase in this climb from fading or forgotten to retold becomes firmer thanks to newly accessed archival records. In an interview Cutler did to promote the documentary at the time of its release, he expresses both the importance of the archival materials and the idea that Belushi's story had already been told and told often. Succumbing to the passage of time and relying on the same quote-unquote bookmarks of memory, or shorthand really, we all do in order to recall fading moments, Cutler's interviewees shared the same anecdotes about John that they always had. Cutler shares, quote, They were the stories that these people always told when they told stories about John. They lacked immediacy. They lacked presence. They lacked a rawness, unquote. Beyond age, or even the cultural observation that we seem to engage in nostalgia more than ever these days, I feel this quote also reveals that John's old friends and associates also had told these stories before many, many times. Whether for some sort of TV retrospective, anniversary journalism, or coverage surrounding offshoots of his famous characters, think that Blues Brothers cartoon, those who knew John had already told us most of what they remembered, and, you know, also what they were willing to share, uh, you know, in polite company, And that is why the tapes, many recorded in the immediate years after John passed in 1982, rather than, say, an attempt to remember some 20 or so odd years later, these tapes provided Cutler with a new utility. He could share the immediacy of the friend's recollections when they were fresh as younger people who had just lost a friend, rather than, you know, a set of old industry veterans romanticizing a lost era from their youth. 
This division in time is also important in helping to ask our original question of why now, when we also think about the generational divide within the contemporary audience. I'm dying up here, Love Gilda, The Comedy Store, and Belushi each satisfies an aging group of performers and those who were their younger audiences in being reminded about what made them so special and successful. For the original participants, these productions scratch a nostalgic itch to recover old territories and familiar battles, particularly within the context of an ever-changing and accelerated media landscape. Particularly for the performers who passed on, John and Gilda, there is also an underlying wistfulness for things unsaid and opportunities missed. So, for the original young, hardcore comedy fans, practically raised (laughs) on the output of guys like Harold Ramis, Belushi, Gilda, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Dan Aykroyd, There is a weird hollowness to such efforts because, again, these stories had been told, and the prime of these careers themselves have long since passed. While admittedly, this example is only one reviewer, who wasn't particularly enamored with Cutler's efforts, it nonetheless speaks to the root of this reaction that the effort is somewhat empty. Peter Subzinski writing for RogerEbert.com, shares his intense fandom for Belushi as a child, weeping when he heard John had passed in a way usually reserved for family members. Expecting the documentary to stir up those same strong emotions again, he is surprised when it seems to just trot over well-worn territory without, at least in his estimation, ever really getting at what made Belushi tick for good or bad. So, for our purposes, Subzinski represents the longtime hardcore fan who at best is serviced with some unearthed nostalgia and appreciation, but more likely a somewhat curious ambivalence to a professional life we all know already so well. For younger viewers whose idea of quote-unquote old comedy is probably early Will Ferrell, or if they're really on the ball, the career of Chris Farley, who lived from 1964 to 1997, Belushi actually is most likely new territory, you know, because they're so young. The broader stakeholder whose interest and connection is only to personalities and celebrity and comedy as a really just a recreational escape only The documentary subject is probably something like, oh, he's the guy on those college posters. (laughs) Those audience members with more interest but not necessarily hardcore comedy fans may associate Belushi's era with a more quote-unquote dangerous time filled with things like drugs and booze and sexism and other political incorrectness that is studied to either understand and condemn or watched vicariously in a manner similar to the popularity of taboo subjects such as true crime. For today's version of hardcore comedy fans, Belushi fills in details in a format a generation raised on Netflix, i.e. the documentary, for a legendary figure older comedians always mention, 
but whose work the younger folks never take the time to watch clips of on YouTube. Jason Zineman, writing for the New York Times, concurs with Subzinski that the documentary doesn't take enough time to explain who Belushi was as a comedic performer. For Zineman, this is a missed opportunity, because so few in the younger audience know his work, it risks turning Belushi into at best a mythological figure, or at worst, just another celebrity from just a previous time. That last point regarding the generational divide, I, I hope you, you caught, you know, I hope you get, and that is, from my perspective, the question of why a Belushi documentary in 2020 really doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me because I know the story, and I hope I've shown the story was told over and over again. But for the younger generation, so long as it is done well, so long as it doesn't just retread everything that they could find in a Wikipedia article, I guess there is some utility to it, um, because in a media environment where we get fresh content every few seconds, uh, especially on a show that now has been running for decades, the idea that someone was a star just because of Saturday Night Live seems kind of old hat, and probably the significance of Belushi is not is a little lost in some of the, the younger viewers, okay? All right, folks, if you've stayed with me through this entire episode, I do appreciate that. I know it was a bit long, but as I mentioned in some of the previous episodes, you know, this limited season, this new season... It's really about sort of working through ideas of history and collective memory in a po- uh, through a pop culture lens. Uh, that is really our focus, or at least my focus. And sometimes I feel like those come out as really complete episodes that, uh, you know, could almost, I wouldn't say get published right away, but, you know, it's something that, you know, there's a lot of detail there already. And others, perhaps like this episode is where we're working through those ideas, right? By talking through them and getting an audience who's interested in it to sort of listen along as we work through those ideas. So um, I hope hope the sort of incompleteness to this uh, doesn't throw you off too much, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And honestly, maybe check out the Belushi documentary if you haven't uh, already yourself. So with that, uh, I just want to remind you of a few things. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, All these new limited uh, season episodes in the main feed are absolutely free right here where you got this episode. Um, If you think you have a friend, a family member, whoever, who might enjoy these ideas or TV history in general, please, we'd love for you to suggest the the podcast to them. And if you yourself are wondering, oh, I wonder what we did talk about in those archival episodes. Again, you can just go to tvhistorypod.com. And you'll see uh, episode synopses uh, for each of those episodes. And then if you're curious enough, all we're asking for is a very small donation over on Patreon. You can find us at Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast on Patreon. You'll get access to the entire archive, plus all the new bonus episodes that are being released in alternative weeks uh, to these main feed episodes only on Patreon. So again... Appreciate you listening. I'm Jonathan Bullinger, and I will see you guys next time. Thanks so much. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh.